Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter Danny Parisi, and I'm here with our international reporter, Zofia Zviglinska. How are you, Zofia? Yeah, I'm great. Thank you so much for getting me on again. Of course, it's always good to have you. Always good to have the transcontinental perspective on all the things we're talking about. Um, actually, well, you know, we'll get to this in a minute, but is Stitch Fix even, is that a U.S. only thing? Like, can you get Stitch Fix in the U.K.? Yeah, it's U.S. only. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha, okay. All right, well, you're you're just going to have to give your opinion anyway. Um, on today's episode, we're going to talk about uh, Stitch Fix had some earnings earlier this week, um, which to me were very interesting because they were not good, but we'll get into all that. Um, we're also going to talk about Jordan, as in Michael Jordan, as in Jordan Brand, which is owned by Nike, having its first uh, flagship store and the potential for it to be maybe more of an independent entity outside of Nike, um, which I think would be very interesting. And then finally, we will talk about um, some funding for the the resale company Archive, which maybe you haven't heard of Archive specifically, but you definitely know the brands that they do the resale for, which would be like Oscar de la Renta, North Face, and all that. Um, And we'll talk about some of the movements in branded resale. Okay, so let's start with Stitch Fix. Um, So like I said, they had earnings earlier this week. Even prior to the pandemic, the last couple of years, um, I I feel like Stitch Fix has been sort of struggling a little bit. If you don't know what they are, they're kind of a a styling service where you take a quiz, a style quiz of what kind of clothes you like. They send you recommendations. You can buy them through Stitch Fix, um, all that kind of stuff. Uh, In their earnings report on Tuesday, their revenue was around $445 million for the, the quarter. I think it was the first quarter. Um, their first quarter, uh, which is about a 22% decline from where it was last year. And they also had an 11% drop in the number of active clients, which is pretty bad. And uh, the various analysts who were were listening in on the call or who wrote about it afterwards, uh, were talking about how you know, in in the in the call, CEO Elizabeth Spalding talked a lot about the macroeconomic factors, which is a phrase that. CEOs love to use in, in earnings calls to kind of explain away some of the problems. Um, the analysts that I was reading um, were kind of saying that this goes beyond just, you know, inflation and recession and all that stuff. It kind of seems like it's more of uh, a, a deeper problem. Um, okay, so I have some theories, but Zofia, do you want to do you want to chime in? What's your thought on on why they've been struggling and and maybe I don't. Do you think that has anything to do with just the business model itself, or is it something else they're doing? I think it probably is just a kind of change in customer needs and priorities of what they're spending on. Um, I think you know a service like Stitch Fix, and to be honest, most services right now, unless they are absolutely essential, I think that customers won't really be looking at them as essentials right now, and especially in the coming year, which you know is again a kind of a worry for Stitch Fix, just because. This is only its, you know, most recent kind of revenue um, and count. Um, And I think for next year, it might even be worse if the recession kind of economic conditions um, affect their customers in a bigger way. So I think that maybe reevaluating that subscription model cost, um, you know, looking at potentially like other avenues. Is there another way of kind of incorporating that into stores where, you know, I think customers are more likely to go right now? And also, you know, offering discounts or deals, something that would make it a little bit more accessible at a time when, you know, it's more difficult, I think, for customers to look at these kind of options as necessities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I kind of have a similar feeling, which is just, I'm not sure how much people, how much value people are getting out of a personal styling service because Mm. there's just so many other 
there's so many other things recommending things to you and learning what you like and sending you similar things. I mean, Instagram does that all the time. Pinterest, uh, you know, influencers um, who are maybe not recommending to you personally, but you can follow the influencers who match your style and then you're getting a constant stream of sort of relevant things from them. Um, and even just sometimes shopping at uh, on a retailer's site or on Farfetch or something, they they remember you if you're logged in and you have an account and they're sending you stuff. Like there there are the average consumer is getting relevant um, personalized stuff sent to them all the time from a bunch of different uh, angles. So I I think maybe just that's a little bit less useful or or maybe there's just so much recommendations and personalizations coming at consumers all the time that you know, there's just not as much need for it. Um, I don't know. Do you you think that's an element? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, you've got so many platforms that are kind of looking at AI and different things to make that kind of personalization service um, for their customers more kind of intuitive, better at analyzing Mm -hmm. what they need. Um, So as those kind of services get better, I think the idea of having a personal styling service will almost be like a luxury. Like, why would you need to pay extra on top if, you know, all of these things are already coming to you based on your previous preferences? Obviously, you know, it's great for different career changes or something where you need to reinvent your whole wardrobe. But again, that timeline is kind of icky. It's not something that you would necessarily need um, I would say like every month or even every year, like this personal styling, I would say is something that you might need, you know, every couple of years to reinvent, you know, who you are and update your wardrobe accordingly. Um, so I do think that, you know, that might be a little bit of an issue and I'm interested in seeing how Stitch Fix is going to address those problems. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Let me ask you something. Um, I feel, you know, beyond Stitch Fix, but but thinking of all the different ways that different businesses personalize things to you and customize things to you. I am one of those people where whenever the option comes up, I hit reject all for like the cookies and stuff. I I don't want everyone to know everything about me and all of my preferences. And I don't want to be served relevant content. I'm like, let me, I'll, I'll find it myself if I, if I want it. Occasionally though, I do get an ad or something and I kind of begrudgingly, I'm like, yeah, that is exactly something that I want that I wouldn't have seen otherwise. But for the most part, I feel like I don't want, I I always opt out of those things as much as possible. Um, But I have a friend who I was just talking to recently who was telling me that he loves that and indulges indulges them as much as possible and gives them all the information because he's like, one, I don't care that much about my privacy. And two, he, he was telling me that his entire internet is like perfectly made for him now, his whole a digital experience because he's he just plays along with them so much. Um, that that just does not sound appealing to me. But I, anyway, I'm wondering, Zofia, where do you fall on that spectrum? Do you like getting super personalized recommendations or do you ignore that stuff? I mean, I think that my ones are definitely not super accurate. I kind of do wish that they were. That would mean that like the whole shopping experience would be a lot easier. I'm not necessarily someone who's too kind of precious about my privacy. I think at this point, most people have um, kind of succumbed and given up a lot of their data already, um, you know, through platforms like Facebook, Instagram, um, TikTok most recently, who have, you know, updated their user agreements to include a lot of very personalized data from videos. So I think that, you know, that, aspect of privacy isn't as important to me, but I still don't feel like those recommendations are quite where I would want them. So maybe having a super personalized 
know, search experience would be quite appealing. All right, let's talk about Jordan. So um, I actually have been a fan of the, the Jordan brand, which is sort of, technically they call it Jordan brand. I'm just going to call it Jordan for the, the purposes of this episode. But um, I, I, I follow them. I really like the designs. I realize I don't actually own any Jordans, and I, I'm not sure when the last time it was that I did. Um, but anyway, here's the news, which is that uh, later this month, I think December 16th, um, Nike's going to open the first Jordan-specific flagship store. I think they've had one or two smaller Jordan, you know, physical retail things at some point in the past, but this is the first like big dedicated flagship store to Jordan, and it's opening in Milan later this month. And it, it, it's interesting. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. Jor for people who don't know, Jordan is huge. Like the Jordan brand is a absolutely huge moneymaker for Nike. It's like 10% of their entire sale, like their revenue comes from uh, Jordan. And since 2015, that revenue has doubled. It's like over $5 billion. Um, it's a massive, massive brand. And it is commercially successful and it's also prestigious. It kind of sets a tone. Um, new Jordans are extremely coveted and hyped and people get really excited about them and they work with um, big names like the Travis Scott Jordan ones with the backwards swoosh were really big. Um, so it, it's just a really important brand uh, and a big thing for Nike. But for a long time, it's just been kind of mixed in with all the other Nike stuff. You could only buy it from a Nike store or the Nike online store or the sneakers app. There was never a a Jordan, you know, separate flagship store or retail concept or something like that. My take on this is that I think it's maybe a little bit of a test to see how much the Jordan brand can stand on its own and, and possibly an overture into maybe um, letting Jordan kind of spin off even more. Um, maybe more individual stores, more of kind of a separate feel from the rest of Nike. I mean, it's not like it hasn't been working for them to have it be tightly, you know, integrated with the rest of Nike, but I do wonder if maybe they they are thinking of um, letting Jordan kind of out into the world a little bit with its own stores and its own everything else. You, anyway, so mm. you get what I'm saying. Zofia, what's, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting, um, obviously, with... Nike and Jordan, you know, it's it's one, it's literally, I think, the biggest brand in the world right now. Um, so if you're looking at Jordan and possibly a different kind of aesthetic direction, um, you know, a whole range of sneakers that are appealing not just to men, but also to women. Um, mm. I think that targeting that demographic is something that, you know, is still a really big kind of interest area for Nike. Um, and I think it makes sense for them to approach that with Jordans just because they're slightly more kind of wearable they again kind of toe that line between um streetwear uh, and still kind of have those fashion aesthetics that vintage look that might appeal to women a little bit more so i think that it's interesting to see them opening up you know a retail presence in milan um very big for kind of sportswear same as mm -hmm. kind of paris um but i think it's something that you know can can be an interesting experiment. It kind of depends on how they approach the retail experience and whether it's going mm -hmm. to be similar to Nike or whether it's going to be slightly more maybe fashion-y or slightly more kind of experiential, which is something that I've written about before and I think is, you know, a great way to engage customers a little bit more into that brand world, which I think until this point, you know, it's been very focused on basketball, which is great. But I do think bringing in more of that culture and, you know, art possibly like that is something that they could do with the brand um, that might make it a little bit more diverse. 
Yeah, definitely. And I, you kind of alluded to this, but even though Jordan is associated with basketball and obviously started by Michael Jordan, I think it has a very broad crossover appeal. Um, Paris Saint-Germain, the the soccer team, they their uniforms and kits and everything are all made by Jordan. Um, I'm sure there are others, but that's the, the biggest team that I can think of in, in soccer. They're big in Europe in general, I think, and, and having it in Milan, which is such a high fashion capital, um, and also has a, a good amount of streetwear cred. That's where Off-White was, was founded and based and stuff. So yeah, I, I just think not to sound uh, like a Nike fanboy or something, because I really am, am neutral about it, but I do feel like they're uh, kind of like don't miss a lot of times, you know? And uh, I can just, I could easily see if they wanted Jordan to to stand up on its own as this separate thing and turn it in. I, I, I think that they can. I mean, there is no indication that there's not a ton of demand um, and that there would not be a ton of success for them there if they, if they did want to make Jordan into its own kind of thing. Okay, anything else on Jordan before we move on to our last story? I think that the other thing that's interesting to mention with um, Jordan's and kind of the sneaker market in general is that it's been kind of alluded to over the last couple of months that the sneaker kind of resale market is slowing down. And I'm wondering, you know, because Jordan and, you know, the, the kind of consecutive ranges have got such a big appeal on the resale market, I think they're one of the top three if not top five on StockX. Um, I think it makes sense that, you know, at the moment it might be good to just test these kind of concepts because all of these things could point to an oversaturation in the market, in which case, you know, maybe focusing on those experiences and less on driving, you know, a mass kind of spread of product would be better for the brand. Yeah, definitely. Um, All right, let's talk about archive. So I kind of, I'm just, I'm bringing up the archive thing because I I think it opens a window to an interesting conversation. But um, you, like I said earlier, maybe you haven't heard of archive specifically. I'm talking to the listeners, not to you, Zofia. Um, Maybe you haven't heard of archive specifically, but they are one of those behind the scenes company that powers the resale um, platforms of brands. Um, so Oscar de la Renta and North Face are two big ones, but they've got a ton of other clients. Um, They're kind of a similar to or, or on the same level level of something like Trove does does a similar thing, um, powering, I think Trove works with uh, Levi's. There's another company called Treat that does a bunch of other brands. Um, and the, so the reason I bring up Archive, the news this week is that they got $15 million in funding that they raised. Um, this is coming right after, uh, you know, those other brands I just mentioned, um, Trove and others have also raised a bunch of money in the last year. Um, I cover resale a lot. We talk about it a lot on the podcast. Um, for the first couple of years I was covering it, the main thing was like the Real Real, Poshmark, Vestiaire Collective, um, Depop, the sneaker ones like StockX. And these are all brand unaffiliated. They're, they each carry a lot of different brands all mixed in together. Um, but the last year, in my opinion, has seen a lot more brand-owned resale. So like Patagonia, which is was an early kind of adopter, but um, I feel like every month there's several brands announcing, uh, you know, some small resale section. I mean, the big one this week was was that Rolex was going to start doing their own kind of in-house resale thing by by certifying secondhand watches and sending them out to their authorized dealer. So that's a huge one too. But there's you know there's a ton more. Um, and from the brand perspective, I think the the appeal is very obvious because if you see 
a, a company like The Real Real making a ton of money off of selling your secondhand product, of course you would be like, why don't we just sell it ourselves and get some of that money back? Um, but from the consumer perspective, I'm not sure if it's really better or worse. Uh, I, I guess it just depends on what you're looking for. But I mean, something like The Real Real or StockX, the appeal is that you can find a broad variety of sneakers or brands or bags, whatever you're looking for. Whereas if you were to search uh, or if you were to shop just the um, Gucci, you know, secondhand shop or something, it's like just Gucci, which again, if you're looking specifically for Gucci, then then that's great. Um, but it definitely seems like it's motivated more by just we want to take back some of the or we want to get a cut of our own stuff being resold rather than consumers are demanding a, a, a shop of just Gucci pre-owned. So anyway, that's my take on all that. Um, Zofia, what do you think? Have you been looking into this at all or, or have any thoughts about it? Yeah, I mean, I think I covered um, Archive and North Face way back when in April. Um, so, you know, I'm very interested in seeing how these brands are looking at resale um, and how they are trying to, you know, get back some of that control and value from their own products. And it, it poses a very interesting discussion around, you know, how when do you actually own a product? Do you like release that ownership um, once you resell it? Is that supposed to go back to the brand? Um, but I think more widely, you know, there's been a really kind of slow response to um resale as a business model, as with all things in fashion, I think that it moved too slowly. And now it's trying to catch up on, you know, all of these big um, marketplaces and resale sites that are doing it and doing it, you know, better, I would say. Um, the the thing that you brought up around range and just the amount of product that's listed, I think is still going to be an advantage for these resale sites. I don't think that, you know, at the moment, brands have any real kind of additional value proposition that they can add to resell um, unless they're, you know, focusing on like fixing or upcycling the products in some way that makes them more interesting or more valuable. Um, I think that, you know, just taking back products is essentially like pointless for people who might be able to get more for them on, you know, on a resale site. Um, I think that, you know, if there's any kind of revenue cut that the brand takes from the product then it also kind of cuts out the the reseller out of that cycle since it's mostly peer-to-peer -peer networks like I think Bestier is somewhat peer-to-peer -peer. um Depop definitely is not quite sure about the other American ones um but I think that you know all of these are offering something where you're basically trading items um you know rather than kind of going back to the brand and having to cut that longer timeline possibly as well to get that item verified and i think that's something that you know a lot of these resellers will have to consider as well yeah definitely i mean and i'm thinking also earlier this week and i wrote about rolex starting to um you know do their own secondhand stuff um I, I've been talking to some of the watch secondhand places, and watches are interesting because that has a much longer history of a robust secondhand market compared to some other categories. Um, people have been buying and selling secondhand watches in in kind of big enterprise kind of ways for for a long time. And I talked to some of those um, watch resale places, the ones that are not affiliated with the brands, about Rolex getting into selling its own. And a lot of them were kind of, they said you know, we we welcome it. This was an expected thing. We knew Rolex would probably do it. We think it's going to be good for the market and like overall and all this stuff. And I, I don't want to put words into their mouth, but I kind of just, I got the sense a little bit that it was a like 
kind of through gritted teeth almost, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, we love it. We love that Rolex is doing this. Uh, maybe that's unfair. Maybe maybe they are genuinely feel no threat at all from it. But I just, Rolex is so huge and they make up such a huge part of that market, not just watches in general, but just like all, I don't know. They're, they're so big that them doing their own secondhand stuff, just I can't imagine there's not any threat at all or that nothing will possibly change for the the resellers. Um, again, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but that was just the sense I got. Yeah, and I think that actually there was something interesting with Nike and StockX around a lawsuit. I'm not quite sure if that was related to resale. I think it was. Um, so I think oh, it's again... Yes. Do you remember? That was, that, was, that was the NFT thing where StockX was selling Nike NFTs which they said were tied to a real pair of Nikes that they had. But Nike was arguing that the NFT itself was a new product using Nike's imagery, all that yeah. kind of stuff. But yeah, that's what that was. I think it's it could be an almost like an applicable thing to resale. Like, are we going to see, you know, kind of legal ramifications here when there haven't been any for the last couple of years? Are there going to be more kind of fights for the product if it's something more valuable? Um, you know, it's something that... I think that if brands are going to try and claw back that value, it might be a little bit of a struggle um, when you've got all of these established business models that are working perfectly fine without them. Yeah, I, I've definitely heard from some people at brands um, the frustration when they see a reseller like using their brand's imagery in advertising. and oh. But there's kind of nothing you can do about it. I mean, if a resale company is allowed to sell... Um, Nike sneakers, then they are allowed, you know, because they're secondhand. They, it it makes sense that they should be allowed to advertise what they sell. Um, But at the same time, I can see how it can be frustrating to see your logo or your whatever out there and somebody Mm -hmm. else's advertising and and not be getting anything from it. But, um, you know, I, I don't know exactly what the legal situation is around there. I'm sure some brands would love to make that stricter. Um, I don't mm. think, I don't know if that would be a good thing for the world if they did, but I could see how that might push uh, some people towards, you know, legal action. Um, yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being here, Zofia. Um, for those of you listening, uh, please, if you can, give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this. That really helps us out a lot. And you should also subscribe to the Glossy Podcast because every Friday um, we do the, the Glossy Week in Review. Sometimes it's me and Sophia. Sometimes it's me and our editor-in-chief, Jill. Um, and every Wednesday, Jill or I will interview some cool industry insider uh, from, from the fashion industry. So thank you all for listening. And Sophia, thanks again for being here. Thank you.